You're listening to the Enclave Community Church Podcast. For more information about Enclave, follow the links in the description. Enjoy this week's sermon from Jacob Nanny. Good morning. Uh, today's reading, scripture reading, is going to be from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is a good thing we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this time that you have given us to gather together, to worship you, and to hear your word. We pray, Lord, that you be with Jacob as he delivers his message and that you would help us understand his message and apply it in our daily lives. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Tyler. Good morning, everybody. I make no promises about getting you out of here before the Super Bowl starts. But before we begin, I want to start with a story uh, about exercise. So I've been into exercise all my life. I started lifting weights from about eighth grade and uh, I got really into it. I was never strong, never good at it. I still am not. Um, And so that passion for lifting weights continued through high school and college and even today. And a couple years ago, I came across this program called Starting Strength. Um, It's been around for decades and it's a really, really simple program that promises quality strength gains. And so I tried it out, and the first time I did it, uh, I kind of tried it, right? I didn't really follow the program. I didn't do what it said to the letter. Um, I just did some of it. And I got a little bit stronger. It worked just a little bit, but not much. And the second time around, I really followed it. And you can ask my wife. I was probably annoying about how much I followed this program. That's all I talked about. That's all I listened to. That's all I read about. Uh, I followed it down to the letter. I got... Exactly the exact amount of sleep, the exact amount of calories. I follow the program as closely as I could. And even in doing that, I thought to myself, there's no way that this program really delivers on what it promises. It's like, it's way too simple. Like it's just these same exact exercises on the same days, the same sets, the same reps. Like there's no way. I'm not gonna get that much stronger. Well, in three months, I got very strong relative to where I had begun. Uh, don't ask me how strong I am now. I'm not that strong. But relative to where I started, I got really strong. And so I got a glimpse into the reality that when you follow this program, it really, really works. I got a glimpse into the fact that this program works and it grows me in strength. I since stopped doing it and kind of got enticed by other things. But that example of sort of having doubt about the program, seeing for a short window that it really works, is kind of what the disciples are experiencing a little bit in our text this morning. Earlier in the Gospel of Mark, 
Jesus tells the disciples some troubling news. And he says this in chapter eight, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And some of you may remember that at this point, Peter says, no, we'll die with you. And in fact, in Mark's gospel, it says, Peter rebukes Jesus. That's a, I don't want to ever do that. And then Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. They don't understand. Like they've been with Jesus for these three years. He's teaching, he's preaching, he's performing signs and wonders. And then, and then he says, well, all this is great, but I still have to suffer. I have to die and I will rise again. They don't really get resurrection yet like we do, right? There's not, there's some questions about resurrection in the different forms of Judaism. So they don't, they don't get it, which is why Peter says, no, 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 you're not gonna die. I'm not gonna let you die. And if you die, I'll die with you. He's not grasping the significance of what Jesus must go through. And then in chapter nine, verse one, Jesus offers a little bit of hope in a, in a cryptic way, right? He says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So a little bit of, a little bit of hope. Like some of you will be here when all these things take place. In our passage this morning, the disciples at the Mount of Transfiguration get a glimpse of the glory of Christ and they get a glimpse at the program of God's kingdom. And what this does is it strengthens them. They're leaving the mountaintop experience of life and ministry with Christ and they're about to go into the suffering portion of his ministry. And this glimpse at the power and glory of Christ strengthens the disciples. So the main point of our passage this morning is this. Beholding the glory of Christ strengthens us when facing doubt, fear, and suffering. Beholding the glory of Christ strengthens us when facing doubt, fear, and suffering. We're going to see this in in three main points. We're going to see, because Moses and Elijah appear to Jesus, we're going to see how Jesus is the new Moses leading a new exodus for God's people, a new final exodus. Second, we'll see how Jesus is the new Elijah, bringing in the new covenant age. Third, we're gonna see how Jesus is is God. He's a son of God, God in the flesh. And then I wanna spend some time talking about how how do we actually behold the glory of Christ. So as you read this passage, there can be some confusing things. Like why does Mark say after six days they went up? He He doesn't usually reference, you know, days like that. So that's new for Mark. Um, why, why do Moses and Elijah appear? So some Old Testament figures appear, but why those two? Uh, why does Peter offer to build them tents? Is there any significance behind that? Um, there's a cloud that comes and a voice. Like, what is all this? This is, this is a unique event, even for scripture. But the thing is, all of these symbols, all of these things happening, they point back to the Old Testament. And they specifically point back to events at Mount Sinai um, in Exodus. So let's look at some parallel, parallels between what happens with Moses on the mountain in Exodus versus what happens here in our text this morning. First, there is a six-day period in both passages. Right? And, and then, by the way, these aren't exact parallels. They're, they're not one-to-one. So uh, there's a six-day period. Where that six-day period is, is, is different in Exodus than it is in Mark. 
both Jesus and Moses bring up three people with them, three of their closest friends with them to the mountain. They go up a high mountain, right? That's specified in both texts. In both stories, a cloud overshadows the mountain and comes to the mountain. And the voice of God speaks from the cloud in both of the stories. So when one reads the transfiguration story, all of these symbols, they point to something very specific and they remind people, right? I think we kind of underestimate a lot of times how, um, how unfamiliar we are with the Old Testament and how familiar the people of Jesus's day were with the Old Testament. Not saying you can't grasp this now, but if you, if you were steeped in the Old Testament and you read this passage of Mark, you, your mind would automatically think of those things. Mountain, Jesus' face shining, right? Clouds, all these things. And so it's communicating something. It's communicating to the disciples that Jesus is like Moses. He's the new Moses. If you remember my last sermon, I spoke about how Jesus is the first, uh, I'm sorry, how Jews in the first century had some expectations of what the Messiah would look like. And one of those expectations is that he would be like Moses. Deuteronomy 18, 15 says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. In one way, Jesus is like Moses, again, like I said in my last sermon, is that he performs signs and wonders. Moses in Exodus performs signs and wonders that lead to the Exodus. And these signs and wonders in the Exodus, they liberate God's people and they judge God's enemies. In my last sermon, we talked about how Jesus' healing, resurrections, um, and casting out demons, they communicated something, that God is coming to liberate his people from the true enemy and lead a new Exodus. So he's like Moses in that he liberates and judges. And he's like Moses in that, again, he leads us out of our bondage to sin and death. He does this except with our true enemies. Our enemies, Paul says later in the Bible, is not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual realm. Jesus is liberating you from the bondage of sin. Like you you know that if you are in Christ now, you are no longer a slave to sin. Those, Those chains that held you, the slave master that drove you, that's all gone now in Christ Jesus. And this is what Moses in the Old Testament was pointing to. He's led us out of captivity from our true captors. And so beholding Jesus means beholding that the Messiah, the new Moses has come. His ministry demonstrated this for some time now with the disciples, but his recent talk about suffering and death had them afraid and doubtful. I'd imagine you're with someone for years who's doing wonderful things and then they're telling you that they're gonna have to die. That's, I don't know if I would take that news very well. That's hard news to understand. And so for the disciples, when they see Moses, and it's interesting to me that they just knew it was Moses and Elijah. That's divine revelation. Um, I, they, there's no like physical indications, right? So they knew, like by the revelation of God, they knew this is Moses and Elijah. And so they see Moses and they remember what Deuteronomy says and all the Old Testament and they see Jesus is, is who Moses talked about. And that strengthens them. And when we look at Jesus, we behold the one, again, this cannot be overstated. 
we behold the one who led us out of our captivity. Like, can you, I don't know if your experience is like mine where I, I know how bound I was to my sin. And that, that, because I know that, I know how powerful Jesus is in breaking those chains and bringing me out. How, how powerful it is that he has liberated me from sin and death. When you see Jesus, when you read about him, talk about him, this is the Christ that you behold. So the appearance of Moses at the transfiguration tells us that Jesus is the new Moses, but he's also like the new Elijah. Elijah, who also had an experience with God at Mount Sinai, he, he talked with God. Um, he was used by God to challenge Israel's king Ahab because Ahab had kind of sponsored worship of false gods. All right, most of us are probably familiar with the um, really dramatic episode at Mount Carmel where, where Elijah's challenging the prophets, right? And he says, where's your, he might be relieving himself. Maybe that's why he's not coming down. And God used Elijah to tear down the old system that King Ahab was leading to take down this uh, nationwide Baal worship. Jesus is doing that in a new, different, and better way. Like Elijah, Jesus is seen as a troubler. That's what Ahab calls Elijah. You're, you're troubling us. And that's what the Jews call, told Jesus. You're, you're causing us trouble. So Jesus is like Elijah. He's a troubler who charges Israel with abandoning the intent of God's commands. Right? They were following them, but they are missing the point of almost all of them. And, and in fact, they were following after false gods. Jesus says, your father, the devil. And so Jesus is a new Elijah defeating these false idols. You, you notice that in the gospels, they're never like, they're never challenging Jesus. You, you don't see them coming to Jesus challenging, you know, who's the better prophet. Right? They actually come to him and beg for him to not destroy them yet. And with Elijah, there's this uh, sort of a battle dramatic scene with Jesus. It's please don't destroy me yet because he's come to crush false idols and false gods. There's a more striking similarity though between Jesus and Elijah and it's in Malachi. Malachi speaks of this great and awesome day of the Lord. Malachi 4, 5 reads, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And one, one commentator notes this. He says that there was Jewish belief that Elijah would bring general eschatological restoration. Eschatology is a nerdy word for end, end time things, right? So Elijah would bring in the end restoration. And Jesus says this later in Mark chapter nine and verse 12, he says, and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. So when the disciples saw Elijah at the transfiguration, what they saw was confirmation that Jesus is putting an end to the old covenant age. We might get confused when we read the Bible, like the end of the age. And sometimes we might think that means like the end of the world. It, it most of the time refers to the end of this old covenant age, this old system that Matt's gonna tell us about in a few weeks. This old system of, of sacrifices, that old covenant that God made with Israel. He's, he's bringing that to a close and he's starting the new covenant. And that means also that the kingdom of God is coming and invading earth. That has massive implications. And so the disciples who are afraid, 
that Jesus has to die? What do you mean he, you have to die? I, I don't know about this resurrection thing. They're seeing Moses and Elijah and saying, well, he's the Messiah and the kingdom of God is really coming. And if the Old Testament's true and Jesus and all his glory, we see him as, these, as this figure, then at least in this moment, this doubt and fear is relieved. The appearance of Elijah at the transfiguration tells us that Jesus is the new Elijah who's announcing God's kingdom, closing the old covenant age and ushering in the new. So, but even in this instance, in this story, at this point, the disciples are still unclear. Let's read uh, verses five through seven of chapter nine. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Right? Classic Peter speaking up out of turn, saying nonsense. I, I was reading commentaries, and some people are like, well, maybe the tents refer to this. But most of them are like, he's, it, it's almost irrelevant. He's just saying something because he feels compelled to because he's scared. Right? But he does make one mistake in that he makes Jesus equal among Moses and Elijah. But that's neither here nor there. He's terrified, right? I think if you saw Jesus walking with his humanity pulled back and his divinity on full display, you might be too. So he just says some random stuff. And then a voice, oh, sorry, I'm sorry. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. All throughout the Old Testament, again, everything is pointing back. In the Old Testament, the cloud is the glory of God and the presence of God. First Kings 8, 10 through 11 says, and when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because, the cloud, because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. All right, so this cloud is God's glory coming physically. It, it both reveals and conceals God's glory. And in and, and many passages, only those closest to God are able to stand in this glory cloud, right? This is the same cloud that Moses came down from and his face was shining. Additionally, God speaks from the cloud of his glorious presence. In Exodus 33, nine, it says, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. So remember the disciples, they are familiar with all this and this cloud comes and overshadows the whole mountain. They're all there and they see the glory cloud. They see in the cloud, the presence of God and a voice speaks to them. And what God says solidifies the significance of this event for the disciples. What does he say? He says two things. First, Jesus is my son. In the beginning of Mark, God said the same thing, but he said it to Jesus in Mark chapter one, verse 11. He says, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. Now in Mark chapter nine, he's saying, this is my son. He's speaking to the disciples. Not only that, he echoes what we heard in Deuteronomy 18.15, right? In Deuteronomy 18.15, a, a, a prophet like me will come out from among you and you must listen to him. And then God says, this is my son, Listen to him. One theologian says this, God's speaking out of the cloud to Moses 
was intended to ensure that the Israelites would thereafter heed his words. All right, so in Moses, it was that the Israelites would heed Moses' words. Here too, the voice is not so much a pronouncement to Jesus, but is addressed to the disciples and calls on them as a result to listen to him. The manifestly divine means of communication authenticates the messenger. So if the disciples had any doubt of who Jesus was and what he was doing, this event solidified it. He's the new Moses. He's the new Elijah. He's the son of God, God in the flesh, come to dwell with us. And you should listen to him. At the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples behold the glory of Christ revealed to them. And as they hear the voice of God speak to them, they know that Jesus is God come in the flesh. So the glory cloud, the voice of God, Elijah, Moses, all of this is that is pointing to the fact that in Jesus, God is fulfilling all of his promises. Now that means something as we change different perspectives for the people in Jesus' day, that means everything we've learned about, he has fulfilled, but also for those people and us today, he is continuing, continuing to fulfill as well. Everything promised in the, in the New and Old Testament, God is, is fulfilling in and through Jesus even today. This is not a reality that we simply look back on. It's something that we must behold as we live today. This story, one theologian says, has united two expectations which are alive in Judaism. The coming of the prophet of the end time who is like Moses and the appearing of Elijah at the dawn of the end time. It has declared to every Jew that the fulfillment of the history of Israel and every hope for the glorious end time have already begun with the coming of Jesus. At the Mount of Transfigurations, we behold the new Moses, the new Elijah, and God in the flesh, which leads to a question for us. What does this all mean? And this is the hard part. What does it mean for us to behold Christ in all of this glory? Now, we can't really behold Christ like the disciples did. I'm not saying it's impossible. I, I just don't think it's normal for us to see Jesus shining with Moses and Elijah around. Again, it's perfectly possible, but it's so improbable, it's a little doubtful. Um, but we will, be rest assured, we will see Christ like that one day when we're with him in the new heavens and new earth. This vision that the disciples see that theologians call the beatific vision. We will be with Christ in person, beholding this glory. That's something you have at least to look forward to. Beholding the glory of Christ in here, right? With him. We're not there yet though. So today, right now, what does it mean for you to behold the glory of God? I thought a lot about this as I was preparing. I had a really, really hard time with this. Um, I think I called multiple people um, to, to kind of ask, like, what do, you th- what do you think this means, right? So I would, I would read, read my sermon notes, then I'd pray, and then do that over and over again. Like, why? I don't, how do you behold? Like, I can't see him. What does it mean to behold Christ in faith? And then God led me to uh, the Puritan John Owen. <clears throat> and John Owen wrote a book called The Glory of Christ, which is kind of on the nose, Right? <laughs> And so I started reading that book in my spare time. And in one of the early chapters, ah, oh, this is so difficult to hear and encouraging to hear. 
okay? So in one of the early chapters, he gives some practical advice on how you behold the glory of Christ. He says, first, recognize that this is a privilege we have as Christians. If you're not saved, you can't really behold Christ by faith. It's, it's a gift and a privilege you have that by faith, you can behold the glory of Christ. Second, he says, it's a mystery. It requires much wisdom and insight. It requires some time and patience to understand how to do this. Okay, I'm tracking with you. You're not saying anything new that I don't know. I still don't get it. And then in point three, he says this. Okay, and I think it's up. It's gonna be on the screen, I think. Oh man. Learn how to behold the glory of Christ by remembering how you once set your mind on worldly things. Sinful, unregenerate people filled with lustful desires continually think about and conjure up in their minds those objects which satisfy their desires until their eyes become full of adulteries and they cannot cease from sinning. Okay, If, if they work as hard as that to feed their lusts, Shall we not work just as hard in beholding that which transforms our minds, our minds into Christ's likeness so that the eyes of our understanding shall be continually filled with his glory? Then we will actually see him. We shall behold him without any interruption and we shall never cease to delight in him and to love him. What John Owen is saying is in some sense, this mystery beholding Christ isn't a mystery at all. You do it all the time with your sin. And it's like, ah, I was, at, I was reading at night and I was on the couch like, oh man, I don't, I don't feel good about myself, but also I feel really excited about beholding Christ now. Because us as sinners, we, I don't know if you recognize this, you spend time thinking about your sin. You spend time ruminating on it, dwelling on it. You might even spend time on how you can sin better sometimes, right? These things fill your mind. And if you fall into that sin, it's because it's, it's so filled your mind that you've fallen into temptation and you, you've sinned. And if you wanna know how to behold Christ, do that, but with Jesus. Instead of thinking about this sin that might have you tied down at the moment, think about Jesus. Fill your mind with Christ, the mechanics of beholding the glory of Christ is not difficult because we do it every day. John Calvin says our, our heart is, a, our, our heart is a, a factory of idol making. We're constantly doing this. Do it with Christ. Behold him in, in reading. And I don't mean reading like, okay, today's you know, February 11th, so my Bible plan says this. Read, right? Commune with God through reading, through prayer, through talking with one another. One of the things that's changed my sermons is I constantly call people to ask questions because in communion with other believers, I get to learn more and I behold Christ that way. Beholding Christ is as easy as dwelling on him continually. He's filling your mind through reading prayer and fellowship. I, I don't know... I hope the spirit of God can get this into your heart. I don't know what words to say to make this a tangible reality for you and for me. Or one, actually, I do know one way, okay. Uh, there's this really embarrassing feature on iPhones called screen time. It's really depressing sometimes. And so here's my challenge to you. This week, until next Sunday, turn that on. Or, or if you have a pen and paper, track how much time you spend on, not sinful things, just things you don't need to be on. Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Netflix, maybe you read too much. 
but don't tell us that. That's kind of annoying if you think that. Write all that down. Track your habits and behaviors. And then the following week, spend all of that time on dwelling on Christ. You spend an hour on Instagram every day. Okay, no no one's judging you. Next week, spend an hour dwelling with God, reading, praying, talking about him. I, I, I find it hard to believe that if you do that, I don't think you're gonna come to me and say that didn't work. I think if you ruminate on Christ, you will be, here's how I know you'll be transformed. First, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, and we shall with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. I know this is gonna work because God through Paul says so. Beholding the glory of Christ changes us. And if it doesn't change you, I, you need the spirit of God. The reality that Jesus is the new Moses, the new Elijah, the son of God, the Messiah, it changes us. In fact, Paul says it changes us into the image of Christ. When you dwell on your sin, and I'm speaking out of experience, ruminate on your sin, think about your sin, you are being conformed to your sin. You are becoming like your sin. That's how our hearts work. And so if you dwell on Christ, think about him, you will be conformed to his image. When we sin, we're being transformed into something that God did not intend. But when we dwell on the, and behold the glory of Christ, we are being transformed into the image of Christ. Paul also says in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Don't behold your sin. Behold Christ. Don't behold your sin and be conformed to it. Behold Christ and be conformed to him. I, I promise you, I promise you this will work. And not, not just for your good, but for the glory of God also. Man, we live, we are fearful. I'm fearful. We're doubtful. We, we are facing suffering. We have faced suffering. We will face suffering. And the only solution to this is Christ. Whether it's momentary or long lasting. I have friends going through hard times and I tell them, Listen, man, you're going to hear a lot of advice. The only solution is Jesus. And and I will tell you that until I'm blue in the face. Nothing's going to work unless you behold Jesus. And it will work. It will work for your good. And better, it will work for God's glory. Maybe sometimes the cry of our heart is that, God, I don't know what your plan is. And that has me scared and in doubt. Or maybe it's, God, I, I have a hard time seeing how your plan actually works for me in the end. Right, that's, that's a very real possibility as well. In these situations, behold the glory of Christ. Ruminate on him. Think on him. Dwell with him. Pray with him. Speak about him. These realities of the transfiguration this remembering that Jesus is a new Moses who is leading us out of bondage of sin and death, liberating us from sin, remembering that he's a new Elijah who has who's come to bring all that God has promised. He's come to bring that to you today. And remembering that he's God in the flesh dwelling among you. 
these three things and many, many more things will strengthen you in your doubt, in your fear, and in your suffering. It will transform you from one degree of glory to the next. It will conform you to the image of Christ. Now notice, none of these things, none of this might solve your situation, right? I'm not saying that if you do this, your worldly troubles will go away. I'm not saying that. In fact, I think sometimes we're promised the opposite in scripture. What I'm saying is you will be strengthened during these times. This, this whole transfiguration scene uh, that mirrors Moses and Elijah, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus all experience this in hard times during their ministry. Moses, the Israelites are, are rejecting Moses. They're upset with him for, for bringing them out of Egypt. And God is strengthening Moses during that time. Elijah's running because they're killing the prophets. God strengthens him on the mountain. Jesus is about to suffer and his disciples as well. And God brings him up the mountain, transfigures him and strengthens him. He still has to go down the mountain and suffer. He still, right after this, he goes down and talks to a, a, a father of a boy who's demon possessed. And he has to deal with all that. And he's gonna keep going down the mountain until he dies. Jesus' trouble of dying wasn't wiped away because he beheld Christ, but he was strengthened in that. The disciples were strengthened in that because they saw the glory of Christ. Let's pray. And then Elon's gonna lead us through communion. Lord, God, this is, this is so difficult sometimes for me. Sometimes I, I'm so single-minded on on stuff that doesn't matter. And then I have the audacity to complain to you why I don't feel your presence, why I don't know you better. And it's so simple because you tell us that if we behold you, we, we have the faith to see you, that you will strengthen us. So God, I pray that as we go throughout this week, give us practical ways of strengthening us. Give us practical ways of beholding you. And God, I pray that we are radically transformed by your glory, that, we, that the reality that you are leading us out of sin and death is a, a radical reality for us. That this new age, the kingdom of God that we partake in becomes a reality for us. Lord, thank you for showing us your glory and show it to us in greater and greater degrees. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's sermon from Jacob Nanny. At Enclave, our mission is to cultivate and empower disciples, fostering a deepening connection with God and with one another. Together, we joyfully encounter, embrace, and embody the transformative love of Jesus wherever his calling leads us. For more information about us, please follow the links in the description.